Hey guys, I'm Chastity, and you're listening to the Ancient Conspiracies Podcast, where we connect the origins of some of the most popular conspiracy theories to biblical history. Welcome back to the podcast. Well, as promised, I have an episode for you today that I think is going to knock your socks off. And I'm not going to beat around the bush. We have a lot to cover and I'm going to dive in head first. We ended the last episode where I briefly mentioned two historians, William Strauss and Neil Howe, who wrote a book in 1997 called The Fourth Turning. And in the book, they examined over 500 years of Western culture, and they concluded that modern history moves in cycles comprised of four eras, or turnings as they called them. And each era lasts about 20 years, and each complete cycle lasts about 80 years. And they always progress in the same order. First comes a high, a period of confident expansion as a new order takes root after the old has been swept away. Next comes an awakening, a time of spiritual exploration and rebellion against the now established order. Then comes an unraveling, an increasingly troubled era in which individualism triumphs over crumbling institutions. And last comes a crisis, the fourth turning, when society passes through a great and perilous gate in history. Together, the four turnings comprise history's seasonal rhythm of growth, blossom, decline, and then rebirth. Now keep in mind that this book was written in 1996, but William Strauss and Neil Howe foresaw how the coming fourth turning could play out. They actually predicted terrorists seizing passenger airlines and crashing them into iconic buildings, which they claimed would then set in motion the growth of what we now know as the Patriot Act, a surveillance state where people would begin surrendering their civil liberties for security. Not only that, but they believed that this would be followed by something like a contagion, which would further bring about the diminishing of civil liberties and also the start of mandatory requirements like vaccines. But here's where it gets very interesting. They also specifically named the year 2025 as an epic moment in which a global world totalitarian government will arise as a result of chaotic events that essentially brings the whole world to its knees. Basically, the era that we are currently living in is the fourth turning of the current cycle, and a new cycle is coming up soon. What's interesting about their prediction is that an ancient sect of Jews also predicted the year 2025 as the beginning of a new era. Around the time of Christ, there were a few different factions of Jewish priesthood. In fact, in my world religions class in college, these factions were considered similar to first century political movements. So the Sadducees were essentially the modern Republican Party, conservative leaning. The Pharisees were the modern Democratic Party, liberal leaning. The Zealots were far left, extremists, and the Essenes were the far right, extremely conservative Jews who completely rejected the temple and Roman politics altogether. And just to prove how closely these factions connected to politics, the Roman emperor Antiochus Epiphanes was actually able to bribe the Pharisees and Sadducees into erecting statues of the Roman gods inside the Jewish temple. 
temple and then sacrificing a pig on the altar. In fact, this was the fulfillment of the phrase abomination of desolation prophesied in Daniel. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus even constructs a letter to the church at Pergamon where this event took place and calls them the synagogue of Satan. Now, there eventually rises a sect of Jewish warriors, the Maccabees, who drive the Romans out of the temple and reconsecrate it back to God. And this is the origins of Hanukkah. Now, the Essenes fled this corruption. They rejected Roman politics and wanted no part of it. And they felt like the priesthood had become corrupt because it had. So they ended up in the mountains, and it's widely believed that they were the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Essenes were followers and descendants of Zadok. And Zadok was a Levite priest during the time of King David. And he's mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 24. The Essenes were known for calling themselves the children of light and calling the Pharisees and Sadducees the children of darkness. And they believed that the Messiah would eventually come and therefore they compiled the Dead Sea Scrolls so that they could offer them as a gift for the library of his kingdom. And interestingly, it's believed that John the Baptist was himself an Essene. The prophecy in Isaiah of a voice crying in the wilderness was an Essene prophecy, and it's believed to be the entire reason that they existed. They went into the wilderness to fulfill this prophecy in Isaiah about preparing a way, and they even called themselves the way 200 years before Christ. The book of Acts mentions the way a few times, a hidden reference to the ancient order of the Essenes. The Essenes predicted many signs in which to recognize their coming Messiah. And when Christ finally arrived, this Jewish sect not only recognized him, but they became his followers. Now, historians believe that the Essenes disappeared from history around 70 AD, but I've heard it promoted that they didn't actually disappear. They became the early Christian church. They were the only faction of Jews to recognize Christ as their long-awaited Messiah. Now, the Essenes worked off of a solar calendar, which they claimed was given to Adam by God. And the Pharisees were said to use a paganized lunar calendar that Orthodox Jews still use today. But the Essene calendar is based on a 364-day year, which begins on the spring equinox, where there's an equal amount of day and night. It's also set up so that everything comes out exactly the same every single year. 360 four days is exactly 52 weeks with no leftover days. And there's even a reference to this 364 day year starting on the spring equinox in the book of Enoch, which was preserved among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now this gets a little scientific, but stick with me. It's going to blow your mind. According to the Essenes, all of human history takes place in just 7,000 years, which would make sense scripturally because if a thousand years is as a day with the Lord, and a complete week is seven days, then 7,000 years would be a complete history. And the Essenes broke this 7,000 years into four distinct ages. The first three ages span 2,000 years each, and the final age is considered a Sabbath, the final thousand-year millennial reign. 
These 2,000-year spans are then split into 500-year increments, and each 500-year increment is then split into 50-year segments, or jubilees. And these jubilees were then broken down into seven seven-year periods, plus a final year, which equals the 50 years. Now, that's only important so that we can narrow down the scope and specifically determine where we are located on the grand timeline of history. It's like counting miles versus versus feet, versus inches, versus millimeters. But also, this explains why there is specifically a seven-year tribulation period mentioned in Scripture. Have you ever wondered why it was seven years? Well, that's because it's how history was counted from the creation of the world, according to the Essenes. And here's where it gets interesting. The Essenes called the first 2,000-year period the Age of Creation, rightfully so. The second 2,000-year period was called the Age of Torah. And this is when Moses led the Exodus and the law was reestablished. It's also when the Essenes existed and the final 50-year span of this age included Christ's arrival and the destruction of the temple. And the third 2,000-year period was actually listed by the Essenes as the Age of Grace. That's what they called it. And it's during this age of history that the gospel has been spread. We are still living in the Age of Grace. And then the last thousand years, they called the Age of the Kingdom, what we would consider Christ's millennial reign. Now, as I mentioned before, we are currently living in the third period of history, the Age of Grace. And get this, the Age of Grace began in the year 75 AD, which means it will conclude in the year 2075, completing the final 2,000-year period of history on the Essene calendar before the millennial reign. And this means that the final 50-year span of our age, the final jubilee period in the age of grace will begin in the year 2025. Now we have no way of knowing which seven year period out of that final 50 years that end time prophecy will unfold or at what point during this final jubilee that Christ will return. But Christ arrived during the final jubilee of the age of Torah as well. And if history repeats itself, he appeared very early on in the final jubilee of that age. So not only did the Essenes predict 2025 as the start of the final 50-year period before the millennial reign, but William Strauss and Neil Howe also predicted 2025 as the year that a global world totalitarian government will arise as a result of chaotic events that brings the world to its knees, exactly as was prophesied in Scripture. Now, in 2010, the Highest Intelligence Agency in the United States partnered with the Highest Intelligence Agency in Europe to produce a document titled Global Governance 2025 at a critical juncture. And in this document, they discussed what the trigger event might be that would set in motion the sudden need for all of the nations of the world to set aside their differences and come together in mutual defense of one another against an extraordinary threat. In other words, what would cause the creation of a one world order? Well, ideas included the collapse of the global economy, just like was predicted in the book of Revelation, and other ideas 
included a space threat, an asteroid, for example. And it just so happens that in 2004, NASA discovered an asteroid that they project to be on a direct collision course with Earth. They initially claimed that it would impact the Earth in the year 2029, specifically Friday the 13th of April 2029. But skip forward to modern day, and now NASA is claiming that Apophis, the name they've assigned to this asteroid, will not, in fact, strike Earth in 2029. But listen to what Pastor Tom Horn has to say about this. I got to say something yes. very quickly here, and that is NASA is repeating their position that we've really looked at Apophis, we were really afraid in the beginning, but we've determined that Apophis is not going to strike the earth in the year 2029. And so everybody out there is, oh, thank, oh, what a, thank what goodness a we yeah. got it all clear, except, <laughs> except right. there are top 100 scientists who disagree with NASA. Right. Uh, Harry Lear, a mathematician, wrote a letter to the U.S. president begging him to have the government scientists reevaluate mm -hmm. the trajectory of Apophis because he says that they are off by literally hundreds of thousands of miles in terms of its deep space trajectory and how that's going to affect its arrival here in 2029. Nathan Meervold, who's actually listed year after year in the top 100 scientists in the world. He wrote a peer-reviewed science article called An Empirical Examination of Wise Neowise Asteroid Analysis and Results, in which he refutes much of what NASA is saying, but he even goes further than that. He accuses them of a criminal cover-up. He says they are absolutely cooking the books on the trajectory of, of several of these asteroids, and the likelihood of it impacting Earth is far more than what they are admitting. And then, of course, of course, you have the very popular planetary scientist and astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is on YouTube right now. You can go and watch it for yourself, wow. uh, in which he says this, quote, Apophis will come so close to Earth, April 13, 2029, it will dip below our orbiting communication satellites. It will be the largest, closest thing we have ever observed to come by Earth. The orbit we now have for it is uncertain. Because these things are hard to measure and hard to get an exact distance for, we cannot tell you exactly where the trajectory of Apophis sure. will be. Mm -hmm. So wow. there are top scientists. They're not alone. No, right. they're not alone. And basically, they're challenging what NASA is out there saying right now. If you've seen the movie Greenland, right, and you have this giant comet that is headed towards Earth, and NASA's saying, no, no need to worry, folks, no need to worry. And then all of a sudden, the military transport vehicles are in the air. And everybody's running for cover yeah. and it decimates <laughs> the earth. So I believe that that's the kind of situation that we are looking at. Now, what's interesting about this asteroid is not only how close it's predicted to come to Earth, but Pastor Tom Horn shares that after having a conversation with an astronomer friend of his, he learned that the first four trumpets in Revelation chapter 8 all describe in perfect detail what would essentially be the fallout from this type of asteroid impacting the Earth. 
We're told in Revelation chapter 8 that when the first trumpet sounds, fire falls from heaven, setting the fields and the trees on fire. Now, this could very well be the initial debris out ahead of an incoming asteroid. Followed by the second trumpet, where a giant stone mountain burning like fire falls into the sea and wipes out ships, killing sea creatures and turning the water blood red. Now, this would be typical of an asteroid breaking up upon entering the atmosphere. In fact, there's a lake in India that was formed from a meteorite crater thousands of years ago. And in 2020, the water inside of the lake reportedly turned blood red. It was believed to be an algae bloom of some sort specific to meteorites that for the first time in decades was not interrupted by human intervention since everyone was at home in lockdown. And this could very well explain how the oceans turned to blood because of such a meteor. And when the third trumpet sounded, Revelation says that a great star falls from heaven and it contaminates a third of the waters on earth. And it was given the name Wormwood because it made the waters bitter. Now here's an interesting fun fact about Wormwood. Did you know that the Ukrainian word for Wormwood is Chernobyl, as in the nuclear facility that completely melted down and caused the entire area to be flooded with radiation and made uninhabitable for almost the last 40 years. It was named Chernobyl because of the herbaceous plant that grows around it called wormwood, or Chernobyl in the Ukrainian dialect. Maybe the waters being bitter is connected in some way to a nuclear fallout that happens affecting the water, but it's just a thought. And according to the book of Revelation, when the fourth trumpet sounds, the sun goes dark, the moon turns to blood, and the stars fall from heaven, which would likely be from the fallout dust that is kicked into the air after impact. This would most certainly block out a third of the earth's view of the sun, moon, and stars. And I'm not trying to scare you further, but NASA is claiming that Apophis is 370 meters wide. It weighs an estimated 20 million metric tons, and it's traveling at approximately 28,000 miles an hour. They also claim that if it hits the Earth, it will be the equivalent of every single nuclear warhead on planet Earth being detonated in one place at one time. 65,000 times as powerful as the nuclear bomb dropped on Hiroshima. They're also estimating it to make impact around the border of Mexico and California. It's said that by the year 2025, people will be able to look into the night sky with their home telescopes and see it coming. And by 2027, you'll be able to see it in the night sky with the naked eye. And Tom Horn believes that this is possibly why Donald Trump created a new branch of the U.S. military in December of 2019, Space Force, as a way to mitigate its impact on Earth. 
Now, Pastor Tom Horn believes Apophis to be the prophesied wormwood in the book of Revelation. And it's interesting that NASA named the asteroid Apophis, which was the name of the Egyptian god of chaos who appeared all throughout artwork as a giant serpent, a dragon. Now, tell me that doesn't sound like something straight out of Bible prophecy. And in case you're already trying to do the math in your head, the trumpets of Revelation, including the impact of Wormwood, happens almost exactly in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. So if Apophis is set to arrive in April of 2029, according to NASA, and this is in the middle of the seven-year period, if we count backwards three and a half years, the beginning of the seven-year period would fall right in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles in the year 2025. And the significance of this is not only how fast this date is approaching and how it lines up not only with biblical prophecy, but the Essene calendar and the research of historians who charted the cycles of 500 years worth of history, but also the connection that it has to the Feast of Tabernacles that I discussed in episode 5. It has long been believed that Christ's return will coincide with the fall feasts, including the Feast of Tabernacles. If you haven't heard the prophetic impact of these fall feasts for us as Christians, I encourage you to go back and listen to episodes 3, 4, and 5. And as I've said before, this podcast will never be a place of fear-mongering. So in case you are feeling some fear right about now for what this means about our not-so-distant future, I have a little spark of hope to share with you. NASA has actually given three separate dates for when Apophis may impact the Earth. 2029, 2036, and 2068. And Pastor Tom Horn shares how all throughout Scripture, when God's people came together and prayed, God showed mercy and deliverance. There's always a possibility of God delaying it. That's one scenario. But the other scenario is this. These signs in the sun, moon, and stars was also mentioned in Matthew by Christ himself, in which he says, quote, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun and moon will be darkened and the stars will fall from heaven. This is also repeated in Mark 13, quote, but in those days after the tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars of heaven shall fall, unquote. And also in Luke 21, quote, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations, unquote. And again in Acts chapter 2, quote, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming great and glorious day of the Lord, unquote. And each and every one of these scriptures, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, Acts chapter 2, is followed by then. Then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. When these things begin to come to pass, look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draws nigh. And this, my friends, is the promise that we can take to the bank. And I'll do you one even better. In Revelations, immediately following this set of events, a great multitude suddenly appears in heaven. And it's documented by John. In fact, one of the elders in heaven asks John, essentially, where did all these people come from? And John replies, you already know. 
And the elder replies, these are those who've come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. The rapture. John witnesses the rapture. And we'll talk more about this when we get into our study on the book of Revelation later this year. But just in case you need any more evidence that we are slowly creeping towards the period of history long prophesied, I want to direct you to the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, we're told that in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he started having strange dreams. He dreams of a large statue whose head was gold with a torso of silver, a lower body of brass and legs of iron, and his feet were iron mixed with clay. And there was a large rock cut out of a mountain which smashed the statue, specifically the feet, and broke them to pieces, which toppled the entire statue. Now Daniel is brought in to interpret the dream and tells Nebuchadnezzar that these are kingdoms, empires, that will come after him. The final kingdom being partly iron and partly clay will be partly strong and partly broken, a kingdom divided. And it's during this final kingdom that the God of heaven will set up his own kingdom that will never be destroyed and it will crush all of the previous kingdoms and bring them to an end. Now skip to Daniel chapter 7 and we're now under the reign of Belshazzar, another king of Babylon and the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And now Daniel is having a dream and in his vision he sees four great beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and the final beast was unrecognizable, but he describes it as being terrifying and very powerful and destructive, with iron teeth and ten horns. And in the midst of the ten horns was another small horn. Interestingly enough, this vision is also witnessed by John in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 13, John also describes a beast with seven heads and ten horns. And each of the horns had a crown. And he too describes this beast like a leopard with the feet of a bear and the jaws of a lion, exactly like Daniel saw. And in Revelation chapter 17, an angel explains to John that the ten horns are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but will receive authority as kings alongside the beast, hence their crowns. And the small horn is representative of the Antichrist who will rise among them. And this is what we discussed last episode. Now bear with me here as I explain this symbolism, but I shared about this exact topic in my very first headlines episode from September 9th, 2022. The seven heads of this beast are a reference to Rome. Rome is geographically surrounded by seven hills. And this beast having seven heads is the very depiction of the reunification of the ancient Roman Empire, the beast empire that has long been prophesied to one day return. And the animals used to describe this beast represent the nations from the ancient Roman Empire. France is represented by the leopard. Germany is represented by the bear. And England is represented presented by the lion. So could it be possible that the beast that both David and John saw was actually something more like a coat of arms, the distinctive symbols representing the identity
identities of the key players. And if that's the case, then this is going to blow your mind. In Revelation 13, we're also told that the dragon gives the beast its power, throne, and authority. Now, the symbol of a dragon is found in numerous places, leading to numerous possibilities. But I think the one that fits the best is the dragon that comes from the flag of Wales, as in the former Prince of Wales, who on the day that he was officially sworn in under that title in 1958, was surrounded by banners covered in red dragons. Britannia was once the head of the Western Roman Empire, and the symbol of Roman antiquity was a red dragon. Now, there's a lot more connections here that I just don't have time to expound on, especially when it comes to how King Charles may connect to this scenario. So if you want to know more, listen to my headlines episode from September 9th, 2022. But in correlation to the vision that both John and Daniel saw of this beast, we also have the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And his dream maps out future eras of history, just like the Essenes did and just like historians William Strauss and Neil Howe did. The first empire was gold, his own empire, the empire of Babylon. The second empire was silver, representing the Persian empire. The third empire was brass, representing the Greek empire. And the fourth empire was iron, representing the Roman empire. And if you remember from episode 14, this iron age was mentioned by the pagan prophetess of Apollo, the Kume Sibyl, in connection with the return of Apollo. Remember, Apollo was long prophesied to one day return and reunite the ancient Roman Empire. And the designers of the Great Seal of the United States placed a phrase from this prophecy of his return on the Great Seal of the United States. The Novus Ordo Seclorum is literally prophesying the age that will bring about the return of Apollo. The Kume Sibyl says, quote, Only do thou at the boy's birth in whom the iron shall cease, the golden race arise, unquote. Now, the golden race were the gods, which we talked about in episode 10. So she's essentially saying that with Apollo's birth, the Iron Age will cease and the golden race will arise. And this is verified further down in her prophecy. Quote, he shall receive the life of gods and see heroes with gods commingling, unquote. Now, if we line this up with Nebuchadnezzar's dream, after the Iron Empire comes feet, which were a combination of iron mixed with clay, the attempted merge of two different substances commingling, but very weakly. And I bet you never noticed how Daniel explains this. In the King James Version, he says, quote, And whereas you saw iron mixed with miry clay... They shall mingle themselves with the seed of man, but they shall not cleave to one another, unquote. Did you catch that? Who are they? They will mingle themselves with mankind, but won't be able to cleave to them. 
Could these be the gods prophesied by the Kume Sibyl when referencing the return of Apollo, where she claims that his return brings about the commingling of heroes with gods? Even Christ himself said in Matthew 24, as it were in the days of Noah, so it shall be with the coming of the Son of Man. And what did we see happening in the days of Noah? The fallen angels who had promoted themselves as gods were commingling with mankind and corrupting the earth, which ultimately brings about the flood of Noah. But in those days, they were mating with the women of earth and genetically altering mankind. And maybe this is why Daniel makes it clear that they will commingle among mankind, but they won't be able to cleave to us. And that's where we're going to pick up next time. Next episode, we're going to explore the alien phenomena. Is there a biblical explanation for what these UFOs and UAPs could be? Are they fallen angels who are still trying to genetically alter mankind in an attempt to either thwart God's plan of redemption or deceive their way back into heaven? It's an episode that you're not going to want to miss. And as I've mentioned before, I'm working hard to build a blog that will act as an added resource to complement my podcast. My goal is to create a blog where I can share the latest news headlines and my thoughts on current topics. And then inside of the blog will be a members only section. For $10 a month, you'll have access to a private blog that will house a library of videos and PDFs that I've accumulated in more recent years, along with a slew of posts, which will offer a more interactive experience covering all of the topics that I cover in my podcast. There will be pictures, video clips, and I'll be able to link reference material inside the text. So you'll be able to search the entire blog for keywords on any topic that interests you. I think it's going to come together beautifully and you'll not only be able to see what it is that I'm talking about in the podcast, but also research it more for yourself. And I'm still aiming to push it live on February 15th. I cannot wait for you to see it. In the meantime, if you're loving the podcast, please consider becoming a listener supporter and helping me do what I love so that I can continue sharing this knowledge with others. There's a link in the description of today's episode if that's something you're interested in. But if not, please consider leaving me a review on whatever platform you're using. Reviews bring credibility for those who aren't familiar with my show. And to be honest, I'm tickled to death when I see your feedback. And as always, hit that subscribe button if you haven't already and share this podcast with a friend. We'll see you next time.